you've tuned into TV You Grew Up With, where we interview the people who created the greatest TV shows ever made. Here's your host, Jim Harrell. Welcome to TV You Grew Up With. I am Jim Harrell, and so glad to be with you once again. And I'm really excited about today's show. Uh, we're combining a fantastic guest with uh, a couple of subjects who were the integral parts of one of my favorite all-time television shows. Of course, I'm talking about The Andy Griffith Show, and uh, we have Daniel DeVizet on the line. He is the author of the recent book, Andy and Don. Uh, just a fantastic book that talks about the making of a friendship in a classic American TV show, Andy Griffith and Don Knotts. Now, Daniel, uh, well, he has his own very impressive credits. He's an author and journalist who has worked at the Washington Post, the Miami Herald, and three other newspapers in a 25-year career. His investigative reporting has twice led to the release of wrongly convicted men from life imprisonment. Not only that... I think he's our second Pulitzer Prize winner on the program. Um, he shared a 2001 Pulitzer Prize for deadline reporting. He's a graduate of Wesleyan and Northwestern Universities. He lives with his wife and children in Maryland. We are so glad to be with him today. Daniel, welcome to the program. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, a lot of times we get into this, well, why did you write this book? But you have a family connection here, don't you? I, I sure do. Um Around about 1987, I started dating this girl at Wesleyan. And mind you, that's not Ohio Wesleyan. It's the one in Connecticut. The sure. Ohio one's a wonderful institution as well. Um, and uh, I found out pretty soon that she had an older sister who was dating a movie star. I guess this sort of thing happens when you live in Hollywood and her family <laughs> was living there. And it was the sort of thing that I think Sophie was a little slow in kind of breaking it to me because it was pretty novel. But it turned out it was Don Knotts. And... Um, I believed her because she wasn't the kind of person to kind of twist someone around with a story like that. But it was pretty hard to swallow. And then a couple of years later, I, I met the guy. I met them both. I, I guess I knew Francie a little bit. But I met them at Disney World. Uh, and, and Don was the VIP guest. And it was just like you'd imagine walking around Disney World with Don Knotts would be. We were mobbed and just benevolently mobbed everywhere we went. People wanted to hug him and to get his autograph and to talk to him and to tell him how important he was in their lives. And this interest spanned every generation and it spanned many different characters. They weren't just connecting with Barney. They were also connecting with Mr. Furley <laughs> and with the nervous man from Steve Allen, which is a great character. And with the guy from the ghost and Mr. Chicken and the guy from, you know, and all these different Disney movies. And sure. It was amazing. So yes, that's the that's a long answer to your question. Now going back, uh, certainly an icon. People uh, loved and and, and loved them both. But Don Knotts, in particular, not an auspicious start. A very difficult childhood, right? Indeed, um, bo both of them. And I didn't know any of this when I started out. And this is one of the things that you know, all the wonderful previous books about Mayberry and the Griffith Show. They they never got into it because they were mostly about the the characters. Um, my goodness, did he have a hard life. <laughs> he was born in West Virginia coal country in 1924 and born into a family that was already struggling mightily because the father had been afflicted with what I believe was schizophrenia. I don't know that they called it that, but I think that's what it was. He had had hysterical blindness and so couldn't work 
the farm anymore and had, was confined to a, a couch in the living room and just sort of ranted and raved and literally came after little Don with a knife more than once because he probably thought Don was, a, you know, I don't know what, a criminal or something. And um, so Don lived in fear of his father. His father was institutionalized more than once at, help me, what's it called again? Was it the, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum yes, in Weston? the yeah. very one, the very one. Um, yeah, I knew you'd, you'd know that. And so it was a rough childhood. The, the, the mother was left to sort of lead the family. She brought in boarders for a dollar a day. And that filled the house with the sort of characters you would see later in, in Mayberry, like uh, itinerants and bums and hobos and students and all manner of different people. And Andy Griffith, you know, both of them came from kind of a uh, uh, rural uh, background. And uh, uh, I, I would think that his background was a, a bit nicer than Don's, but a lot of commonalities there. Yeah, um, I, I think Andy had it a little easier. He was an only child, and that's a very important point because Don was one of, I'm going to lose count, I think five, although he was the youngest by far. Remember, we also had a single mother basically raising him. They were poor. Um, in Andy's case, he was an only child. I'm not sure why he was an only child, but he was. He lived on the, on the, on the poor side of Mount Airy, which was kind of the furniture belt, um, North Carolina. His father indeed made furniture. I think because uh, his father had a, a steady job, um, there, was, there was money coming into the house. Not a lot. They lived on the wrong side of town, quote unquote. And it's important to note that Andy's friends from the poor side of Mount Airy were from enormous, enormous, you know, litters, you know, like seven, eight kids. And the money in those families just didn't go as far because there were so many children. Um, and I interviewed, I think for the first time, a number of people who were his childhood friends. And they told me we were dressed in rags because, you know, I had eight brothers, you know, or whatever. And Andy, his mom dressed him nice because he was an only child. And his mother pampered him and could pamper him because he was the only kid with one, one mouth to feed. So it was a, a better upbringing from a, a sort of financial sense. But if you read the old interviews with Andy from the 40s and 50s, um, he had a hard time. He was, he was bullied uh, by some of these chums in his neighborhood because he looked different and was kind of, again, a little bit maybe of a mama's boy. He got he, People would put sticks in his spokes and that sort of thing. And then at, when he arrived at the public school, well, all the rich people bullied and taunted the poor people. And so he got bullied by them as well. And this is why Andy had this sort of 50-year chip on his shoulder toward his hometown of Mount Airy. Now, it's kind of ironic because you think maybe uh, Don Knotts, you think kind of a milk toast and all of these different things. But he ended up serving in the military. And Andy did not. Um, and this is this is all in the book. Don I, I had I had to call the military to figure this out. He was drafted. He doesn't he didn't say this in his memoir. I'm not sure why. He he made it sound as if he had enlisted voluntarily. I'm not sure why he did that. Because many, many brave men were were drafted into the army. In fact, more than you think in World War II, there were a lot more people drafted than we're given to believe when we when we reconsider the greatest generation. But they were no no less brave for that. And Andy was I'm sorry, Don was very brave. He went over with an entertainment division. It was called Detachment X, which sounds like like a, a, <laughs> something from a sitcom, right? Right. And they, they were just behind the invading army. They've been characterized by the late Al Checo, just died, as the USO with helmets. 
Um, so there were bombs going off, you know, shells crashing as they performed. And it was, by all accounts, terrifying work. Don thought he was losing his mind. He thought in the back of his head all along that he had his father's mental illness dormant within his brain. And he, he always feared that it was going to manifest at some point. And in the jungles in the Pacific, he thought he was losing his mind. It was a very hard time for him. You didn't really ask this, but let me say that Andy got out of military service. Um, it was a little bit of confusion in the records of why. He said it was because of, God, I can't remember. I think his daughter Dixie told me flat feet or something. But his friends in Mount Airy told me it was because uh, he, he had this uh, religious thing. He was going to be, he was studying to be a, a minister at the beginning of his college education. And according to at least one good friend from back then, he sort of intentionally stayed in that ministerial path in order to avoid serving and, and said as much to his friends. Um, it's a little fuzzy, but I think that's the truth. And that once, and then he, he, Andy later figured out that in fact he had a disability, a, an old back injury from falling out of a swing or something that, that also gave him an exemption. And, and I think it followed pretty quickly after that, that he abandoned ministerial study and went into performance, which was really his true passion. Well, it's interesting, and it comes full circle because later in his life, you talk in the book about how important religious faith was to him, and especially uh, towards the end of his life. And uh, and that's a very interesting kind of counterpoint. Now, um, they both went off to to seek their their fame and fortune after this period, and uh, both uh, both in New York. That was, I guess, where you went um, in the 40s and, and 50s, right? Uh, it was before L.A. became the center of the universe. Um, this was still the era when radio was king, and I think the radio mostly issued out in New York. In fact, the old studios had to be repurposed from radio to television. Um, cinema was still a big deal, and there were still films being made in New York. Broadway was king. So both of them made their way up. To New York, in, and in and in both cases, there's a lot of parallel here. Um, Andy and Don both bombed the first time they went to New York. Andy went on Ed Sullivan and just <laughs> did not do well at all. His dearest friends back home knew it because it was it was like you could hear the crickets. And he retreated back south and did something like a year and a half of nightclub gigs all over kind of rural America before he went back to New York and conquered it. In Don's case, he went down right after high school. He went up, I mean, right after high school and bombed. He tried to go on one of these sort of variety shows and the lady said, kid, you seem like a nice boy. Why don't you go back home and kind of learn how to act? <laughs> so they went back and, and, and Don ended up in New York in the early 50s. Uh, I would say maybe even as early as 49, 50, he was cast onto a radio show called Bobby Benson, which was a kid's show. And Don played an old timer. Windy Wales, uh, sort of like Gabby Haynes, Gabby Hayes. Um, Andy went up later and broke in after his big uh, uh, sort of nightclub stint and wound up talking his way into the lead role in No Time for Sergeants, which was a big deal franchise that was about to be a, a hit play. And then Don, who had been on the radio at that point for a few years, talked his way into a smaller part in that production. And that's how and where they met. One thing I want to mention, and people now may not recall this or be aware of it, but uh, Andy Griffith, uh, one of his big first uh, uh, public uh, successes 
was a, a record uh, called, I believe, what it was was football, and uh, really, particularly for someone and and Daniel, we've had the discussion. My family was from the South. Uh, someone who's familiar with that milieu, if you will. Um, it's just a very funny, funny record where he plays kind of this uh, hillbilly character who happens upon a football game and tries to describe it. Yeah, uh, each each of my characters had a brilliant character that he developed. In Don's case, it was I call you call him you'd call him the nervous man, and it came to Don in a dream just as Paul McCartney awoke one day with yesterday in his head. Mm-hmm. So did Don awaken one morning with this nervous character in his brain. And what it was, I believe, is a caricature, a send-up of the masculine post-war ideal, the sort of Gregory Peck, John Wayne, strong, silent type that everyone prized in a man in the late 40s and into the 50s. Don kind of mocked that and his nervous man was everything that guy wasn't <laughs> you know jittery uh <laughs> flappable not unflappable but flappable um scared of his shadow uh needed to be consoled by the woman standing next to him you know not at all a strong or silent type and that was at the heart of every character i think he ever played in andy's case in back in college at carolina he came up with a character who wound up being the character manifested in this football sketch. And in Andy's case, it was a a send-up of the sort of stereotypical sort of Southern rube, the the hayseed bumpkin out in the fields who doesn't know one thing from another. And he had created this part a long time before he went up north. This This was the character at the center of his Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet monologues, his sort of preacher and the bear you know, foot stomping gospel thing that he did. He did these oleo acts in Raleigh and in the theater. He had this in his head for a long time when he went up to New York. And the football sketch was, I guess, the finest iteration of that character. It's this kind of dumb cluck who <laughs> stumbles across a football game. And as you say, his his loved ones, his friends in Carolina understood exactly what he was doing when he did that part. And that's something that I, I think that people lose sight of, you know, and especially reading this book, even, you know, I think I'm pretty savvy about this stuff. But you got to remember, these people are not the characters they portray. There may be threads of them in those characters. Certainly, I would think playing armchair psychiatrist, some of the uh, traumas that Don Knotts uh, had during his childhood probably fed into and helped create the nervous man. And, you know, uh, uh, a lot of the better parts of Andy Griffith uh, are parts of Andy Taylor. But uh, those are just little pieces. They weren't at all necessarily the people that they portrayed uh, 100%. I, I would even go further and say that maybe these two characters, these two personas were the men Andy and Don didn't want to become the the guys they tried to transcend. I think if Andy had not gone to Carolina, had not been very intelligent, had not been super ambitious, had not gone up north, maybe in the back of his mind he feared he might become that that guy, the um the the character from No Time for Sergeants, the character from the No Time for Football. I mean, um <laughs> what it what was, was a football, football sketch. Yeah. He might he maybe feared that might be who he'd become if he didn't escape that fate. And in Don's case, there was a heavy dose of the nervous man. Oh, yeah, in that guy. Um, this was the man for whom, you know, the, the hand sanitizer was invented. I mean, he was always afraid of getting sick. 
He was always afraid of going on stage. He would lock himself in his room sometimes for days on end and drive his wife up the wall. Uh, he was so fearful, was he, of live performance, of illness, of viruses. He was scared of everything, but he transcended those fears, right? He, he, was, he was super ambitious. He was very intelligent, just like Andy. And he had enormous drive. And so he overcame all those fears and forced himself out of his bed and out of his room and out of his house and, and up on stage and performed and was an amazing performer. But it was only by dint of overcoming all those fears, kind of transcending the nervous guy. I do want to get us to Mayberry shortly, but uh, j just a word about uh, some of the time between when they met at no time for sergeants and, and up until Mayberry. Uh, I mean, Andy Griffith was the star of that play, and Don Knotts had uh, uh, a memorable role, but not uh, not anything near the level of what uh, Griffith had. Yeah, right? I, I can lead you from then to 1960. It's not too hard. Um, Andy was the star, Will Stockdale. It, it really made him. And so in that period of 55, 56, 57, 58, he did that Broadway role hundreds of times, won all sorts of acclaim. You could still do that like on Broadway in the 50s, you know, become nationally known for that sort of thing. He, he made that into a movie, which was a hit. He made a Kazan film called A Face in the Crowd, which just aired on TCM the yeah, other night. Yeah, I, I watched it uh, before <laughs> I ever knew we were going to do this a couple of months ago, maybe three, four months ago. Wow. <laughs> oh, it, 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 but you know what? It wasn't universally praised at the time. It was, it was, it met with middling reviews. A lot of reviewers were sort of offended or shocked by his performance and it didn't do very well. So Andy didn't see that as an unqualified success. Although I knew, I know he understood what a great film it was, but he wished it was more popular. So Andy then went on and this is really important because nobody remembers this about him. He then had a, another film that was a flop called Onion Head that nobody's ever heard of. And he had another Broadway show that was a sort of semi-flop called Destry Rides Again. So by 1960, he felt like he was backed into a corner and had no choice but to retreat onto television. And that's where the Griffith show came from. He, it was his last chance. In Don's case, and I'll, I'll do this quickly, he had a, a smoother run because he, he graduated from this minor but great part on the sergeant's thing into a, uh, a long-term role on the Steve Allen show as the nervous man. And, and, and he, he attained national celebrity for that. He started being recognized on the subway. And by the end of the decade, he'd done four or five consecutive years of this nervous guy and was really celebrated as part of that show, which was kind of a forerunner to the, the letterman. And so the, the pilot for the Griffith show airs and that, that, night. Uh, Don knows nothing about it, but he's out in Hollywood at the home of Pat Harrington, who became television's Snyder later on. Mm -hmm. And he, he sees it. He watches it and he's like, oh my gosh. So he calls Andy the next day and says, gee, Ange, you got a great show coming up there. Uh, how would you like for your sheriff to have a deputy? And that's, that's where it all happened. Now, originally, the, the plan wasn't to have Don Knotts as to be the Andy and Don show. It was going to be Andy and a lot of it was going to, from if you remember a book, I understand it was going to revolve around the relationship between Andy and Opie. Ron Howard, of course, is a child actor. Uh, but that evolved fairly quickly over time, didn't it? It's, it's, it's striking how different it was at the conception. Um, if you watch the pilot, which you can watch on YouTube, I, I assume that's free of copyright. I don't know. The pilot was an episode of the Danny Thomas show. And in that pilot, 
Andy is basically Will Stockdale. And if you're familiar with that character, he's a, you know, bumpkin. He's the guy from the football sketch. Broad, physical humor, lurching all over the stage, being a goofball and emanating humor, making all the humor. And, and everybody else around him is sort of reduced to straight man or straight woman. Andy didn't like that and didn't want that. But at the beginning, there was really no one else. Opie wasn't going to be the comedic lead, right? Uh, Aunt B was <laughs> sort of like the Margaret Dumont of this, of this production. So they needed other people, and they didn't know who they were going to get. Well, first episode of the show, they, they, put, they throw Don in there. And I say throw. I mean, he, he had you know an uncertain commitment. They didn't know if it was going to work out. So he went out there for a one-off <laughs> role. And, you know, by the end of the first day and they're watching the dailies, they realize, my God, this, these two have an amazing chemistry. Let's sign this guy up. By the second episode, Don, I think even by then had a contract, which is important to say because he didn't have one before then. By the second episode, which is called Manhunt, everyone, including first and foremost, Andy realized that, wow, this guy, this Barney character, he's going to be the funny one. Andy's going to be the straight man. Andy spent the next year sort of gradually retreating away from that Will Stockdale shtick into a more serious, more sober, more fatherly, more Lincoln-esque, they would say, uh, character who was sort of the benevolent sort of Lord of Mayberry. And everyone else, uh, you know, in time we would have um, Otis the Drunk. Ernest Floyd, T. <laughs> Ernest T. I just wrote a blog post about Ernest T that's going up on classic movie hub this morning um floyd the barber would all revolve around around andy now this show really took off now I, I, we had had a conversation the other day before this interview and i had thrown out the theory and, and my family was from the south or west virginia not technically south but in any, every other way the the, the south oh, yeah. and um my my parents had come up here in the 60s uh, to, to the cleveland area where i live and my theory was you know Part of this was maybe a lot of Southerners who had gone north to cities and so forth and factories to work. And this was a, a way to kind of go back to an idealized hometown visiting every week with, with Mayberry. But you made the point that it was even broader than that. Um, yeah, I, I, I think what you say is, exa is exactly right. I interviewed people, um, uh, Richard Kelly, who wrote the first definitive book on The Griffith Show. I think it was he told me. It was a revelation for him when he saw this show. He said, that's my town. Those are my people. Um, but yeah, I think even more than that, it, it, it appealed to all these people who over the course of the 20th century kind of retreated from small towns and farms and just smaller jurisdictions into the big cities and into jobs in the cities, uh, white and black, all different races. Um, and then they could watch this show, which was a perfect little you know, sort of like microcosm of, of that lost glory of Americana and feel like they were going back home. And, and everybody who listens to this broadcast knows someone like that, whether it's you, whether it's your mother or father, your uncle, your, your great aunt, everybody who's lived here for more than a generation has somebody in the past who came from that. You know, my mother was born in Brookings, South Dakota. <laughs> right. Um, I think her parents were born on farms, you know? So yeah. And, and, and I, but you're right. I mean, it resonated most strongly with those who were actually from the real South because there had been no show like it. I don't think before then. 
And the thing is, is that it was totally roped off from the 60s. And you make the point that, that not only was it uh, kind of transforming people in in in, in space and in, in putting them back in a small town, but almost in time because there weren't, as you make the point there, you know, nobody hardly owned a television. It didn't seem like it seemed like it was almost going back a couple decades in time. Yeah, um, there there are some shows, I guess, like like Mash or Happy Days, come to mind that are purposefully set sort of in the past. And it, it's funny that if you watch either of those shows now, you you feel, I mean, let's be honest, like we're watching the seventies when we watch Happy Days. It looks a little more seventies than fifties. It looks like a weird mix of the two. <laughs> yep. The Griffith Show somehow transcended that. Um, they set out sort of quietly, privately you know, secretly, I guess, to recreate Andy's and to some smaller extent Don's experiences in childhood from the 20s and 30s and 40s. Uh, and everyone on the set knew that. Ron Howard told me, you know, we knew that. We knew that's what we were doing. This was Andy's hometown back when he was growing up. Oh, okay. So that's, how, that's what we're going to do. And so you don't see a lot of uh, appliances. You don't see a lot of uh, up-to-date cars you don't see a lot of electric guitars well i see you see a couple but not many you don't see televisions you don't see automated telephone systems and it and it's such a beautiful timeless hollywood production like i i guess like a great marx brothers movie or a great james bond movie or something it's so beautifully produced that it is friggin' timeless i mean i don't i watch it now and i don't feel like i'm watching an old show i feel like i'm watching like, again, like a Marx Brothers movie or something, something that is just utterly timeless. And I, I don't know what it felt like to watch the show in 1960. They must have realized that they were watching something that was a little bit consciously backdated. But I, my theory is that's why it's the number one reason why it's so literally just timeless. It's literally out of time. It's, it's removed from time. Now, uh, and I was thinking about this as, as I read the book, and, and then we had a conversation, and it even brought it more into focus. When you think of great 20th century comedy teams, you think about Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, Martin and Lewis. But why don't we think about Griffith and Knotts? Because they were a fantastic comedy team. Yeah. Uh, well, to, 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 to go like you think of Hope and Crosby, they were one of those teams. And in, uh, the biographer of, of Bob Hope, who wrote one of my blurbs, thank, thank you, it was really great, um, <laughs> Point pointed out that he sees Bob Hope as an unsung film actor, uh, you know, just on his own. Well, I see Andy and Don as sort of an unsung comedy team. And the reason why they're unsung or have been unsung is that they're part of this like collective known as Mayberry. Um, they are players in this large ensemble of beloved characters and remember that um, there's this great, I think, meme that's been, is that what, what a meme is? It's been going around Facebook saying, why do you think they were all so happy? None of them had spouses. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, uh, Betty Lynn doesn't have a husband, although she's dating Barney or, or parents. Um, you know, Goober is, I think, somebody's cousin, but <laughs> Otis has a wife, but you seldom see her. Uh, Howard McNear, Floyd the Barber, I think, has a spouse, maybe, but you never see that person either. They were one big happy family in Mayberry. Ron Howard, I think, maybe even the first person to point that out. He he re realized it. Andy's a, a widower, right? Um, and and so they are each other's family. And and because Andy and Don are part of this ensemble, it is a little bit. It's not obvious. It's not an obvious thing to pluck them out from that ensemble and look at them as a as a team. But I do, and I did, and the book is all about 
celebrating the wonderful skits they did that elevated so many episodes of The Griffith Show. Ron Howard, when I interviewed him, told me, um, gosh, I was, I was, by the second season, I was reduced to sort of a secondary actor in this production. I was supposed to be kind of, you know, the second guy after Andy, but by the second season, it's Andy and Don, dot, 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 you know? Uh, and and, and the, their relationship, I, I, I swear to, to goodness, is, is, is at the very center, at the very heart of the show. It's the most important relationship by far in Mayberry, and, and their interplay is at, is at the heart of the show. And so I think you have to look at them as one of the great comedy teams. And I know they did. I know that for decades after that show was over, each of them knew in their heart of hearts that the work they did together was the best work they would ever do. Now, um, the one interesting thing, and I think that if you look at the business arrangement at the head end, maybe kind of points to why Don Knotts eventually left the show after, I believe, five seasons. Um, Andy Griffith had an ownership piece of the show. I mean, this made him uh, a wealthy man. Don Knotts was another employee, essentially, even though he had a lot of overtime, had a lot of creative input and uh, helped write the episodes in a very close uh, relationship. But business-wise, this was not incredibly lucrative for Knotts, was it? If you look at it more as a as a as a as a creative partnership or a business partnership between our two characters, um, each wanted what the other had. Um, I can't stress this enough. Andy had financial reward uh, as I think half owner of the Griffith Show. It made him a wealthy, wealthy man, but no artistic recognition recognition whatsoever. He was never even nominated for an Emmy. And his show was only nominated once or twice, and I think lost once to the Monkees. No offense to the Monkees. I play in a Monkees cover band, but um, <laughs> the show never won an Emmy. Andy never was even nominated for one. And he, he was, I think, really, really unhappy about that and, and, and envied Don the fact that he won five Emmys, the most, I think, to that date by a, a person playing a character in the same show. Um, I think Art Carney and some other people since Murphy Brown have won an enormous number of Emmys. But I think when Don achieved that, he was the first. And, and, and remember, folks, the last two Emmys Don won for just walking onto the set and doing a guest spot and then walking back off. And at the end of the season, he got an Emmy. And that happened to him twice in, I think, 66 and 67. And it must have been pretty galling not just to Andy, but to the whole rest of the cast to be overlooked in that way. Although Frances eventually did win an Emmy for her work as Aunt B, and, 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 and rightly so. So the, 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 the kernel in the book, I've never seen or heard this before, but what really gets to the heart of this is Andy could not talk about those Emmys with Don for years. He finally, I guess, got over his hurt to where he could joke about it with Larry King in the 90s. Oh, well, I wish, yeah, I would have borrow one from Don, show it to my mother, you know, she'd like it. But um, during the 60s at the time, he never congratulated his sort of best friend on <laughs> his accomplishments from the Academy. Now, uh, before we go on to the the, the end of the, the Barney Andy partnership, per se, after he leaves the show, um, I, I do want to say a word about the other characters. I mean, my goodness, it seemed like in most cases, uh, I think you mark Eleanor uh, Donahue is maybe an exception uh, who was the first kind of love interest for Andy uh, the mm -hmm. first season, but pretty much these people seem to be perfectly cast. 
Well, uh, it's funny. I think Ellie was was actually brought on to be a long-term character. Um, if you watch, and you can find it on YouTube, the first episode she's in, her name goes up ahead of Don's. She was going to be the number two, you know, or maybe number three after Ronnie. She was going to be the love interest. And it just didn't work. And and it was obvious right away. I don't know why they cast her, because I think she'd been playing a someone's daughter, like a college-age you know, basically a kid. And so who thought that was a good idea to cast her as the love interest for the sheriff? Because everybody was going to remember who she'd been just before then. But it didn't work. Both of them knew it. And by the end of the first season, she sort of graciously bowed out. These other characters, these other actors, ironically, were brought on mostly for one-off parts, you know, uh, you know, don't, don't get a permanent parking space, you know, keep the, keep the meter running on the taxi. (laughs) <laughs> fella. And and they came on and did a, did an episode, you know, um, uh, Hal Smith, Otis the Drunk. And at the end of the episode, you know, uh, someone, probably Aaron Rubin, the producer, said, hey, hey, Hal, that, that might that might shape up as quite a role for you, you know, and say, oh, well, so should I, <laughs> you know, should I quit my other job? Like, okay. And that, so it was with Jim Neighbors. Um, and, and I think, uh, Jack Dodson, Howard Sprague, um, probably Howard McNear, all of them came on as one-off, I think, most or all of them. And they just, they killed in their parts. And so they were they were signed up. And that's how it worked uh, in Mayberry. Now, Don Nuts leaves after five seasons. And also the, the program transitions to color. And, and uh, I don't want to harken back to our, our private conversation too much, but I think I mentioned to you, my feeling is, is when I turn on and see the Andy Griffith show and it's in color, I'm like, eh, I'll skip this one. Am I alone? <laughs> oh, no, sir, you are not. Um, I wasn't sure how far I could go in the book or in my book talks, which I've done all over Carolina and Virginia, Maryland, in saying this. But my feeling is that it's a much, much lesser show after Don leaves. Of course, it's also peripheral to my interests because I'm looking at the relationship between the two men. And once Don is gone... You know, I didn't watch anywhere near all the episodes without him because why should I? You know, he's not there. Um, but I was struck by this. I met, I have met hundreds of people who are passionate fans of the show. I don't know that I could remember one person who came up to me and said, by golly, I love those color episodes. They're just as good as the black and white ones, if not better. It's it's no surprise to me that it was number one when it went off the air in 1968. No, sir, I have met only people who have told me, oh, ah, nah, nah, those those episodes, those color ones are not good. Um, they're, you know, I really just skip them most of the time. Uh, I, I sometimes watch them, but but begrudgingly, <laughs> you know. Um, I heard that over and over and over. And I I want to demystify this because I think a lot of people would be afraid of ever saying that, but I couldn't find a single soul at any of my book talks who felt otherwise. So yeah, you're not alone. Now, the thing is, is that the, the show goes on and still quite successful uh, for a few years. Yeah. Uh, it morphs into uh, Mayberry RFD uh, without Andy. And the interesting thing here is, I mean, I've always thought of Andy Griffith being the bigger star. And I guess maybe because it's called the Andy Griffith show. But if you look at the time between Don leaving the Andy Griffith show and up until the uh, success of Matlock, Andy Griffith's successful series starting in the mid-80s, in that period, actually, Don Knotts had a much better career. Um, you, you could say that, a, a cleaner, more logical <laughs> career. 
John, um, one of the many authors of prior books on this topic, made the point, I think it was the guy who wrote the Threes Company book, who said that Don seemed to do everything in sort of five-year blips. And so he did five years of Universal films after The Griffith Show, including the Mr. Chicken one. And they were all good films. And most of them were hits. Once we get to the sort of Easy Rider, Midnight Cowboy era, <laughs> yeah, kind of something a little different. <laughs> Don's films start to start to ebb in popularity because he's still making wholesome family movies. He went on from that to do five years and just fell into this. Uh, well, I, he didn't just, he was a very, very ambitious, hard-driving man, but he, quote-unquote, fell into five years of work with Disney, did a whole bunch of Disney films. Every one of these films, I think, was a hit, and, and they were all hits because he was in them. Uh, or in the case of the Conway Knotts, films, I would say, in deference to Tim, <laughs> because Conway and Knotts were in them. Um, and so he elevated many a Disney film. And then after that, he, he segued beautifully, effortlessly into this part on Three's Company, which was pretty much the hit show of its era and did that for about five years. Okay. In that same span of, we're talking 15 years, Andy started off with his own universal film contract, but it, it didn't pan out. He made one film, The Angel in My Pocket, which is a fine, fine movie that apparently nobody saw. And, you know, money talks. It didn't make money. And so that was the end of his film contract with Universal. So he struck out to try to redefine himself as a serious actor, more along the lines of the Lonesome Roads part from The Face in the Crowd. He made a whole string of pilots that were failed pilots. But, you know, most pilots are failed pilots. Let's remember this. <laughs> a whole bunch of made-for-television movies they're mostly really good roles. He was a great actor and a great serious actor, but it took a decade and a half for sort of him to be rediscovered, if you will, by uh, the executives, I think, at NBC, who then set about building the Matlock show around him. And another point I want to make, just to bring some context to this, if you look up your favorite sort of television actor on IMDb, it's kind of striking how many misses they have for every hit that they have. Sure. And so the fact that Andy had these two huge hits is kind of like getting struck by lightning twice, um, if you think about it. And Matlock went on for longer than The Griffith Show. It was nine years to, to eight. Uh, so it was a huge hit for him. Yeah, and it's interesting. I think we forget that because there are so many people out there, uh, so many actors who have had one great role. And then it's, uh, and we've talked to some people on this show who have been in some iconic programs and long running programs and in people who would be recognized easily in public and, but they're typecast and they can never get out <laughs> of that prison. They can never uh, get out of that prison and yeah. it kind of sets, sets them up the rest of their career to have a very difficult time finding work, particularly work that kind of gets out, gets them out of that box. It is, I think it is so common in Hollywood. Um, and if you asked Don, if you asked Andy, if you asked Jim Neighbors, if you asked George Lindsay Goober, if you asked, uh, well, Howard McNair passed away, but almost all of these people, and let's, let's exclude Ron Howard because he did some other stuff. Um, almost all of these people were mercilessly typecast for years after their enormous success on The Griffith Show. It's the same curse that afflicts all of my favorite sitcom stars. You know, you look at um, any of them, and I won't name names, but any of my very favorite characters from, say, The Office or Arrested Development or Seinfeld, my favorite shows, you know, of, of, the, of the contemporary era, how could those people get another part and right. not... I mean, even if I watch Veep, 
and uh, you know the Elaine actor actress is on there, right? And a fellow from Arrested Development is also on there, but it is hard. <laughs> for right. Me to... There's Elaine as vice president. Yeah. <laughs> There's Tony Scott as uh, the great chief of staff actors, or whatever. Yeah. But it's very hard to see them separate from those amazing roles they did many years ago. And I almost think it's punishment for a job well done because when you look at someone, um, and well, I'll give you an example. Uh, I we had Don Most on the program, a well-spoken, nice guy, couldn't be more of a gentleman. And, you know, you're getting ready to uh, interview him. And even though intellectually, you know, he's not Ralph Mouth, you're kind of <laughs> expecting Ralph Mouth. And I'm like, this guy's erudite. He's smart. Uh, he's a nice guy. Uh, but people like him have done such a good job at creating that character and becoming one with that character. It's almost like they did too good of a job. <laughs> well, um, I've heard him talk and he is scary smart, but. In the case of my main characters, Andy and Don, one thing I was trying to do in the book was to remind people that that these guys did, I think, ultimately transcend these incredibly powerful, iconic characters because to, to their enormous credit, Andy was not only remembered as the sheriff. I mean, many, many people. I was on the phone with somebody from the bank and she was telling me how much she loved Matlock and kind of remembered him for that. Um, there's people who... Uh, the producers of Matlock, Dean Hargrove and, um, oh, forgive me, I won't remember the other fellow's name. They're brilliant men, loved Andy above all for his work in Face in the Crowd. And in Don's case, as I said at the outset, uh, people at Disney World were walking up to him and seeing him as Mr. Limpet or seeing him as Ralph Furley or seeing him as the, the repairman from, um, what's that movie he did at the end of the 90s? Um, Pleasant oh, uh, Pleasantville, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's the TV repairman? Yeah, and think of how hard those guys had to work to get past yeah. the sheriff and the deputy. Well, the the thing the thing here is is that I, I mean the thing that really I didn't realize these guys had this ongoing relationship afterwards, and that's what's amazing. And so much so they were determined to work again. And once Matlock became the success it was, Andy Griffith brought Don Knotts on board for a while. And, and to the chagrin of the producers, um, uh, the, the producers were leery about it because Matlock was made by a formula. It was an elegant formula, but it was a formula all the same. It was a formulaic mystery show. And uh, the producers, Dean Hargrove, did not want it Mayberryized, <laughs> And they were worried when Andy started clamoring to bring Don onto the show because of the power of those two characters. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen to Matlock when you have Barney in there? And he also brought on some lesser known people, who, including Anita Corso, who had been Helen Crump and, and, and gosh, even I think one of the writers who was, who was also an actor was brought on and several other people. Aaron Rubin was brought on to do consulting. So he, he, he Mayberryized uh, Matlock, but you know, the show survived. It even kind of got funnier, I think, over time and, and got a little more lighthearted, which is great. I think the later episodes, episodes are a little bit looser in, in, a, in a good way than the earlier ones and a lot of fun. And yeah, so Don went on there, did a bunch of episodes, but I think they, they sort of agreed in the end that it didn't really work. I mean, it was a little bit strange seeing Andy and Barney, you know, in Matlock. And at the very end of their lives, Don uh, preceded Andy and death. They still were very, very, uh, very close. And some of the things you mentioned in the book are incredibly poignant and touching. Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't belabor 
the point that, yes, they were still friends in the 70s, and yes, they were still friends in the 80s. I didn't think I had to do that. I mean, you take one look at the Christmas card Andy sent to Don. Um, I think it was, I remember what year, what year one, it was one of the last years Don was alive, and that speaks louder than I could say in my book. They were very, very close. They were best friends, and they kept in constant contact, and they both really not just admired, they treasured, treasured the legacy they had left on that show. It was so, it made them both so proud and they were just both so happy about the work they'd done together. And every time they would get together in one of those big fancy Hollywood restaurants where the tables are spaced far enough apart that people can talk in privacy, um, they would just go on and on and they would reprise, revisit their sketches and and the dirty jokes they used to tell on the set (laughs) (laughs) and just make everyone just double up in laughter. And they were so proud of the work they'd done together. I was I, I was really struck uh, by uh, towards the end of the book you write about Don Knotts mor- memorial service and Andy Griffith was there and I believe you were there as well and uh, really just the uh, emotion uh, of that event. Uh, I was at Don's funeral. That's where I met Andy. Actually, I was not at the memorial. Um, we had small children and I had to okay. stay with the children. My wife went and I interviewed. Well, I spoke to my wife and I interviewed several other people who were there and I watched a videotape of it, which was really helpful. And that was where that scene came from. So it was almost like I was there. To be honest, Jim, um, my memory is so hazy that even what I wrote about the funeral, a lot of it, I mean, I have a feel of it in my head, but a lot of it was reconstructed based on people telling me stuff who had better memories of it than I did. I tend to get overwhelmed in big public events, whether they're happy or sad. And and of course, the, the, the funeral was a very powerful moment, but I tend to get overwhelmed in those kinds of settings and I can't be a reporter. And so I, I, I have only foggy memories of it myself. But uh, there is a scene that you, you talk about where, uh, I guess, uh, as we had kind of talked about earlier, Andy Griffith became, uh, I think more and more spiritual, more and more religious as time came on. And, yeah. and he was worried about Don Knotts eternal soul. Yeah. Um, here's the deal. Don had a lifelong fear of the sort of um, Southern, uh, what's the term? Just the sort of heavy, heavy, uh, hellfire and brimstone, fervent, fervent, fervent spirituality of his youth. I'm trying to be respectful here because I'm not <laughs> trying to joke about this. Right. He went to church and was frightened of what he heard and what he saw and had this sort of lifelong fear that he was going to go to hell because he wasn't feeling it himself. Um, he, he did not have a strong faith and he, he just wasn't feeling it folks. And he was afraid he was going to go to hell. And he, he talked to his therapist about it. And at one point he tried to sort of purge it, but Andy knew this Andy did feel it. Andy was much more spiritual than Don was. And when Don died, Andy yearned to know that he would see him in heaven. And it was after Don's death that Don's widow related to Andy a, uh, a th- something Don had said on his deathbed, which was something like, well, I'm waiting for the, the big wizard in the sky to take me away, something to that effect. And it was a little bit ambiguous, a little bit cryptic, but Andy heard that and said, oh, well, thank you so much. Now I feel like he, like he made a, a peace with his faith at the end. And Andy was overjoyed at that. And that's where you get that, you know, I, I, I know I will see him in heaven because that meant so much to Andy that he would see him there. 
So really, when you look at this, I mean, obviously it was a great comedic pairing. Uh, but in the platonic sense, this was really a love story between two men. It's a great guy book. It's, it's, I think somebody used the term romance. I mean, they adored each other. Um, Andy, late in life, would, would, would start laughing. and say, oh, you'd think we were gay. I love this man so much. But, you know, <laughs> they weren't. They weren't. They were both very straight. Um, but they absolutely adored each other. I, I think as the, as the years passed, each man realized how important the other was to him and uh that so the friendship only strengthened over time even as you know their get-togethers maybe grew fewer um it, i think I, I like to compare it to friendships i have I, I saw a friend last night who's an old college friend and we were together all the time in college and spent some real powerful formative years together we see each other now every couple months but the friendship is just as strong right Right. It doesn't weaken. It doesn't. It doesn't go away. It's, it stays, and I, I trust him more than almost any other living soul, apart from my wife, um, because of what we went through. You know, goodness, <laughs> 25, 30 years ago. So book, that's how it was with these guys. Um, personally, I feel this book is a must read if you're a fan of Mayberry and the Andy Griffith Show and classic TV in general. This is an absolute must read. We've had a great time here with Daniel DeVizze. Uh, he is the author of Andy and Don, The Making of a Friendship in a Classic American TV Show. Daniel, uh, I know you can find this book anywhere fine books are sold, correct? Uh, yeah, I, I would, I, I've been to so many wonderful independent bookstores these past two months that if, if you have one near you, I'd start there. But if, if it's not there, there's, there's always the Amazon. And uh, you know, Amazon is, is a great service. So either or. Um, and it's, yeah, it's Andy and Don. My my website is danieldevise.com. If you if you Google uh, Andy Don book, you'll find me and you'll find it. And it's it's out there. It's in the fifth printing. Um, thank goodness it's been it's been having some success. Daniel, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jim. I really appreciate it. Well, we can only hope, and I think Daniel has this sentiment towards the end of his book that somewhere Andy and Don are sitting on a front porch somewhere having a, a bottle of pop. And we hope that you enjoyed this. Love this subject. And this year in 2016, we are going to ramp up the show and hopefully have many, many more uh, programs uh, at this level. We really appreciate your time. And please, as they said in classic TV, stay tuned. We'll talk to you next time. Bye bye, everybody.